0: The following is a conversation with Dr. Christopher Ginjal. Christopher is a team leader and research fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. His interests lie primarily in the ethical implications of biotechnologies and the philosophy of health and disease. He was previously a fellow at the University of Oxford and was awarded his PhD in philosophy from the Australian National University. On the podcast, we discuss the ethical and societal implications of of using the gene editing tool, CRISPR. CRISPR is a groundbreaking scientific discovery, and CRISPR's thoughts on the topic were fascinating. If you like this conversation, review it with five stars on the podcast app, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram, at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. a bit of context what is gene editing
1: yeah so i might first talk about genetic engineering which i think is like a more general term for manipulating the genome inside a cell so scientists have been able to do that for decades so um, they used to do it with basically splicing different genes together they get a virus and they'd splice say jellyfish genes into a mouse genome and you get glow-in-the-dark mice um, which is yeah, very cool but um Basically, the problem with those technologies was that you'd, um, you'd change a lot of the genome. In addition to the gene, part of the genome that you wanted to change, you would change a lot of else, which is called off-target effects. And these were massive, which made it really unsafe. And in addition, you would only get the change you wanted in like a small number of cases. So you often, with these animals had to get lots of them and breed them together to get like the glow-in-the-dark jellyfish. So although they could do it, it wasn't really applicable for humans. Basically, gene editing is a new form of genetic engineering where instead of using viruses, you use these very, very precise enzymes um, and they make, allow you to make these really precise change into the genome without much off-target effects and basically one shot time you shoot your score kind of thing.
0: And that's what CRISPR is?
1: That's what CRISPR is. So CRISPR is a type of gene editing. Um, There's a few other types, but CRISPR is the most powerful and the simplest to use. So that's why you've seen it sort of explode in the scientific community over the last few years. Who
0: discovered CRISPR?
1: So um, two scientists, um, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier, they actually just won the Nobel Prize um, this year, they were the first ones to isolate the enzyme. Um, But the enzyme occurs naturally in bacteria, Um, So bacteria use it to um, protect themselves from invading viruses. So they developed this enzyme, which they send out, and it will bind to the virus enzyme and cut it up into tiny little pieces. Now, what um, Jennifer Downer and Emmanuel Champontier showed is that once you isolated this enzyme in the lab, you could manipulate it. So it would not just target the viral DNA and cut that up. You could tar- you could design it to target any DNA, any DNA sequence. And they also found that once you've targeted DNA sequence and you make it cut, you can use the cell's own DNA repair mechanisms to alter the sequence there. So that's, yeah, that's what they discovered. So
0: is there almost a endless catalogue of uh, genetic alterations that you can make to someone's body using CRISPR? I mean, how many uh, different options, if, if I was going to make uh, a change in uh, my body, how many different things can I do to it?
1: Yeah, so the current record is about 60. So with pig, with some pig DNA, they've made 60 changes concurrently. But in theory, you could do more and more and more. Um, there Mill- are... Millions
0: or hundreds, thousands? <sighs>
1: Yeah, I think thousands, I think. So I think the main limiter is is a practical limiter. So every time you make a change, you're risking the chance of having off-target effects in other parts of the genome.
0: Despite it being um, much more specific, Despite anyway, it's still quite a little bit risky.
1: Yeah, so um, right now it's a little bit risky. So in theory... Um, in the future, you might be able to make lots of those changes without without those off-targets, but right now, um, it's it's still sort of limiting. So people aren't making that many changes so far. But potentially, I think, you know, in the future, you could. Is that
0: an argument in favour of um, letting people use CRISPR because uh, it'll improve the technology to the point where uh, it'll be more and more precise and more off-target uh, mistakes won't be made? Yeah,
1: So um, yeah, that's right. And that's what's happening though. So people are using CRISPR not necessarily just for humans, but they're using it in all these different types of scenarios now. So they're using it on plants, they're using it on animals, they're using it on human cells like in the lab, in laboratories. Um, And all of those areas, are you're already seeing an an increased precision with CRISPR. So... When CRISPR was first described five years ago, it had a lot more off target mutations than what they have now because they've already made the technique more precise. And
0: so that's been over just the last three years. Yeah. Improved dramatically.
1: yeah. Yeah. And it will, and as you say, because it's been used so often, I think it will just continue to get better and better.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, ethically, what are the strongest arguments for and against? Well.
1: yeah so it really all depends on how you're using it and what you're and what you're doing with it so um most it's already been used in animals and you know some people object to genetically modified organisms um they might think you're playing god you know you shouldn't be messing with nature um but uh, against that, um, you know, you might think that, well, actually, with animals, we're already massively um, interfering with them and we're already, you have such a massive effect on nature as humans that, you know, that cat's out of the bag kind of thing. But
0: it's just the accelerated nature of CRISPR that makes people nervous, do you think, is the difference between that and the way we breed dogs, for example?
1: I think that's right. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's both the accelerated nature, but it's also, I just think, widespread pessimism that we'd use it wisely. So I think people just think we don't trust humans to make good decisions with that technology. And obviously when humans have tried to meddle with things in the past, um, you know, it's gone quite bad and we haven't been able to predict like the negative effects. I was actually, I've been like reading this weird book about dogs, but um, it had one of the it had this quote from the first person that let rabbits out in australia and he sort of this englishman came settled in australia and he let off 15 rabbits and he's got this quote is like you know they can't do much harm but it might be fun to have a little bit of home in the garden right. kind of said and you know within 50 years there were millions Everywhere. of rabbits mm. yeah so it's i think it's mm. that sort of pessimism that you know we've If we try to do something, that we think it might be good, might be a good change, you know, it might get out of the bag and be bad. Is part of the problem that
0: it's almost as if our technological capabilities have now outstripped our ethical knowledge where the implications of uh, what we're doing we can't even foresee at this stage and that's what makes it a little bit, uh, I mean, there could be, indirect consequences of using CRISPR that we couldn't even think of, um, that would be ethically problematic. Uh, Do you think that's part part of the issue?
1: Yeah, I think that's the general, maybe the general worry kind of thing. But I also would press up against that because I would say that, you know, we never have perfect knowledge. We never know how new developments are going to change the world. Um, and if you just think about the impact say mobile phones or you know even just social media has had on humans as a society, those effects are massive and yet they 're unpredictable and it could be the same with gene editing doesn 't mean we sh- shouldn't use it though. Mm. I think it just means we should you know be careful that we're using it for good purposes
0: mm. well like, i've always I've felt with the whole um, situation that now that the cat's out of the bag, um, it should be um, tested on just because we can't uh we can't put it back do you know what i mean it's um i i personally my bias with it is i'll just say straight up i i am one of those people who's a bit more uh cautious and hesitant at the idea of it um and so in an ideal world i think it it would be great if it had never been discovered but now that it has i think it's not a smart thing to shove it underground um and for it to be used by you know um arrogant scientists who will forget regulations and do what they want, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, so, um, you know, I think the flip side, so there are sort of scientists that might, you know, try to make money from it, they might try and do things. But, you know, the flip side is where we're going is that, you know, people get really unlucky in the genetic sort of um, lottery of life, you know, and a lot of people have these rare diseases, which, you know, means they'll have just one spelling mistake in their genome and, you know, they're destined to die before they're 10 and things. And Mm you know, this technology, if you focus it on health-related purposes, you know, really does have a lot of potential to sort of um, end a lot of premature death in the world and ethically think, well, if... If that's the goal, then that seems like a good goal. So
0: it's almost like our obligation it should be to use it if if it's there.
1: I think so. It's, well it'd
0: be it'd be unethical not to use it is almost what you're saying.
1: Yeah, in a sense, so like my way of seeing it would be like it's a tool. So we have a tool and using a tool isn't good or bad. It's entirely what you do with the tool. You know? So a knife is obviously bad if you're stabbing someone with it, but if you're making a lovely dinner and you're cutting up things, that's fine. And I think it's going to be similar with this. I think if you're using it and you're focused on using it to sort of uh, reduce um, early death and to make people's lives go better, then you know, I think we'd have a good reason to do it and you know, that you can frame that as an obligation to use it in that yeah. way as well.
0: Does CRISPR have the potential to cure cancer?
1: So it's got the, it would have the potential to cure a lot of cancers, but wouldn't, not all of them. I would say. So there's different ways you can do it. So um, they're using it right now in a somatic sense. So maybe one distinction I'll make here for the discussion is we can talk about somatic gene editing, which is basically gene editing into the cells of your body, but you wouldn't pass them on to your children. So if you know we edited your skin cells or your immune cells now, those changes won't be passed on. Um, And then there's germline gene editing, which is basically changes to the sperm or egg cells or very early embryos where all of those changes will get passed on to future generations. So with regards to cancer, um, they're already using CRISPR within immune cells to fight cancer. So they'll take your immune cells out of your bloodstream. They'll edit your immune cells to make them target a particular cancer. And then your immune cells can recognize cancer and attack it. So this is a really good, yeah, yeah, um, innovative way to cure cancer in that way. But another thing you could do is you could do germline editing, which could make you, you know, you could knock out cancer-causing cells. So a lot of people have a gene called BRCA, which um, tends to give uh, especially women ovarian cancer and breast cancer. You could use CRISPR to knock the BRCA mutation out. So that wasn't part of the population anymore.
0: So germline gene editing uh, is... uh, Future generations will inherit whatever the alteration is, and that's why it's a bit more controversial as a as a form yeah, of gene editing. Exactly.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. So people have this view that you know, when you're choosing to do a germline edit, you're not just choosing something for yourself; you're choosing something that's going to affect future generations. Mm. So you should be more cautious. Mm.
0: It would be interesting to um, say if you made an alteration that was not necessarily uh, for therapeutic reasons but almost arbitrary, um, you know, the whole...
1: Like enhancement kind of?
0: Well, um, say, say, you know, in the future, you know, like in Gattaca or something where, you know, they decide what colour eyes their child has. Um, if they made if they make an alteration that's uh, a bit more arbitrary, it'd be interesting if... Uh, I mean, that would be one of the main issues is that a future... a descendant of that person uh, might, might rub them the wrong way to know that they... Have uh, this color hair, these color eyes, um, this um, aspect of their body purely because one of their ancestors made the decision without their consent.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know, that's one of the, and that is you know one of the ethical arguments they push back is you're making changes, then people can't consent to it. But. You know, against that, you know, people can't consent to any type of any type of decisions that their parents and ancestors make for them before they're in a position to consent. But
0: what's what's comparable to that kind of decision?
1: Well, so say, um, you know, my parents, when when my mum was pregnant with me, like my dad had a job of... Job offer in Indonesia, right? So they, so they had to choose Australia, or Indonesia. Now that decision affects me, right? And it's, it makes it make it in a, a physical sense, not yeah. in a physical sense. So, but yeah. in a physical sense, um, well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I might come back to that in a minute. But you know, I would just say that our parents have so much control over all aspects of us. You know, they might put you in a school, they might put you in music class. Um, and all these things, they will make physical changes, I guess, to you because they change your brain, right?
0: But do you think, I guess the difference would be that uh, there are alter- changes that you can alter later in life. Uh, if, if you make sure that your child has green eyes and they never wanted green eyes, it's not like when they turn 18, as with the other things their parents force on them, they can just live life how they want to live it. If it's an unalterable physical change, wouldn't that be a difference between that?
1: Yeah, so comparison? I can see, yeah, there are, there are differences there. I'll, I'll say too, though, like once your parents have that choice, right, so they ask you, do you want, from, from luck, from the genetic lottery, your son's going to have green eyes. We can change them to blue eyes if you want. You say, no, okay, I want, I'm going to keep them green. But that child has a complaint, you know, either way. They say, what if they get up and I really want green eyes or I really want blue eyes? Why didn't you make that change for me? You didn't consent me to not make that choice. Mm. But, that's, but
0: that's where it becomes interesting because the child wouldn't be able to get angry um, that they hadn't given them blue eyes or green eyes uh, if they hadn't had the option to do it in the first place, which is to what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, now we've opened Pandora's box with this. Uh, it's kind of an inescapable problem that we've created for ourselves.
1: Yeah, 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 that's true Um, Let me give you um, another sort of aspect on that eye colour choice Because now that it's out So I agree, you know, we could make a different question Whether it wasn't developed, whether we should But now that it's out um, So the question is, should someone who wants to do gene editing for their child's eyes Should they be allowed to? Or should they be stopped? So one sort of principle of sort of just from political philosophy and through liberalism, right, is that, well, I'm in a free society. Um, the government should only intervene in my free choices um, to the extent that I'm harming someone and that I'm really harming someone else. Now, in this world of CRISPR, you're going to get people who want to use this technology for iCola. You're also going to get these private IVF companies and IVF clinics, which, you know, exist everywhere. And they'll want to offer it. They'll probably want to offer that service. they want to offer you that eye color service so you're going to have someone wanting to use this technology someone wanted to offer it to them and the question is can the government come in and stop that transaction and normally the test is well is the eye color going to harm anyone and i think it is it's really hard to say or well, there's going to be a clear harm maybe the child will be angry later on that you made this decision but as i said we don't know that it's not like a harm we can point to at that at that at that point So it it comes down to this sort of reproductive um, liberty sort of question and a lot of philosophers will say, well, look, unless unless you're going to do an edit that's really going to be harmful to the child or to society somehow, then out of respect for freedom, we should be letting people make these choices.
0: Mm. Is it possible that CRISPR will have a negative impact on our collective psyche with that? I mean, prior to CRISPR, if someone was born with a genetic defect, Um, they could rightly tell themselves that that's just life or life's unfair Uh, whereas now life is fair but only for those who can afford it and i know CRISPR is significantly cheaper than any other form of gene editing but that would also apply to people who don't want to use it for religious beliefs which would be a significant um, portion of uh, the world yeah um and that would put them at a disadvantage uh, because of a religious view that they hold
1: yeah yeah so um Yeah, and it it could definitely sort of go down that way. So sorry, is the question with the – so I guess there's the psyche sort of question where – so one critique is if you're editing every kind of disease, right, um, out and then some people just happen to be born with a genetic disease because they don't agree with the technology or something, is that going to have a harmful effect um, on them and you know i think it could and i do think that's something we need to sort of think about because it could get to a situation where um someone who has a genetic disease is yeah not seen as you said that that's just part, bad, that's part of luck and that could be anyone you know that they're for the grace of god go i so we should all be in this together and look after each other
0: it, it uh, perpetuates equality the fact that we don't have control over this uh, because life's unfair for everyone and you can you, you can point to you know certain examples different things in uh, your own life um, it's a way of dealing with it psychologically you can sort of you know be like life's not fair so I need to you know get over this or that whereas once mm. there's a, a tool that allows us to correct um, the things that make our life worse um, an inability to use that say for religious reasons or because you can't afford it uh, is really going to I mean, I know that would affect me psychologically if I I knew that.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I, I think that's, um, you know, that's one of the things we would need to think about when we enter this world is how, what does it mean for, you know, disabled people now if they start to be seen as something that, you know, is not bad luck, but bad foresight. Exactly. Like said. Yeah, they're blamed for it. Yes. Yeah, and yeah, I, I do think that is like a concern. And you, you know, you don't even have to go to the sort of religious example. You might just think that, you know, there are people who, you know, um, I, I don't really care like what the child is like. You know, mm-hmm. I just want a healthy child. And, you know, that's fine. I don't really want to use this technology. Mm-hmm. But then you have lots of people then, say, using the technology for cognitive enhancement where they're trying to make really smart babies where you might think, oh, well, if I don't use this technology to enhance my baby, they're going to be left behind, kind of thing. So there becomes this competitive kind of streak where you've got to, mm. you've got to keep trying to use it.
0: Mm. Um, yeah, because that's that's what I, I, I feel it could accentuate uh, the social and class divides that are already a problem in society.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that and this is a really common. Um, critique of genetic engineering in general is that you know right now our, our world is marked by you know really great inequality but it's inequality and opportunity right there's inequality in who can access these goods and it's just um it's just you know uh, yeah if you can access them or not and that's what's driving the inequality with CRISPR you could potentially write that inequality into people's dna so it's not just access anymore it's that people have different capacities. And, you know, you get this really, you know, divided society from the haves and have-nots. So I, I think that would be a really bad thing. And I think inequality is, you know, one of the biggest problems in the world today. But, you know, my view on it would be back to that. Well, let's see gene editing as a tool and could we use it to, to reduce, inequality. reduce inequality. That's right. So mm. you focus it on people who are the worst off initially. And, um, you know, we try and do that for other Expensive medical treatments today in you know in countries that have socialized health systems where you try and improve access for those that can't have it.
0: How expensive is CRISPR to use?
1: So I think right now, I mean, I don't know exactly, but I think it's like ten thousand or eleven thousand dollars to do it. Uh, I think, yeah, I'm not. Uh, if you're going to do it on a human embryo and you did it with idf I think it would be right now about. Eleven or twelve thousand dollars. We've used it,
0: but what were those in *Unnatural Selection* on Netflix? That is it, Joe Sire, yeah, Zayna, yeah. What were those? packages that he was making weren't they like a hundred dollars or something
1: yeah so sorry so that's what i was trying to say so i think um because i'm thinking about a paper we've done when we tried to cost it but i think we were taking into account the whole ivf process as a cost and that and so, CRISPR
0: being used in conjunction with that
1: yeah that's right but you're right so i think when you're just talking about the CRISPR enzyme and the materials yeah he's selling them for like a hundred bucks for a couple hundred bucks yeah. I think. yeah 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 but
0: what can he with those packages that he was making what could you do with one of those if i ordered one of those
1: yeah, so, well, I thought that was the interesting. <laughs> it remains to be seen because I really, I, I like that um, in the documentary watching him because um, he, he he came across as much less crazy than he does in some of the articles that are written which I just read about him. And, um, you know, I know he's injecting himself with that Maya Tyson knockout. Um, I, 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 it remains to be seen what he can do with those, but potentially um, if potentially the problem when you're doing it somatically is you've got to target like thou millions, possibly billions of cells, right? Cause we've all got 3 trillion cells in our bodies. So it's like a lot to get it to. If you could efficiently get it to all those cells then yeah, you could do lots of stuff like what he was trying to do is get like a really muscular arm and you know, the technology that would work if you could target it. So to you all could those just cells. do that
0: to someone, you could use CRISPR to enhance their, um their muscles
1: yeah if you could get it to enough cells yeah
0: but how how long would it take from uh, using CRISPR? is it like a matter of weeks later you just uh, all of a sudden like i don't
1: yeah i yeah it seems
0: um, a bit almost science fiction that i can't even picture
1: yeah the so process. yeah and this is where my kind of science knowledge is kind of like stretched to a bit but um I imagine it would be in weeks, or months. I imagine the idea is you get it into the sort of stem cell population of your muscles and then, you know, over that cell's lifetime, maybe it's like six weeks where you replace the sort of muscle cells with the new ones and new ones will have the, the knockout. And, you know, yeah, so I think weeks to months would probably be how long that something like that would take.
0: Did you see the final episode of A Natural Selection? I did, but... So there's a, a, a boy in it who's got a... Um, uh, genetic defect where he's been slowly going blind since he was born and he's almost completely blind uh, where the documentary picks up with him. Yeah. And he, I, can't, I don't know specifically what kind of CRISPR technology they use, but he, he, they use some form of uh, CRISPR or to, to change the genetic defect in his genome. And within three weeks, he had complete, complete vision again. Oh, really? From, from being almost completely blind.
1: Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I, is I think crazy. that's... Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, um So, yeah, I didn't actually realize they they're doing that, but I can imagine that that's a somatic change and it's like once you get into the cells and the cells start dividing, they've got that change. So, but that is crazy. It's amazing. Yeah. So um, when I was, I worked in the UK for a bit before I came over here, uh, before I came, moved back to Australia and um, yeah, and I was just, when CRISPR was just coming out and they had this amazing case at the great... Great Ormond Street, which is its pediatric hospital in London. And they had this girl who had leukemia. She was like three years old and nothing had worked. She had, you know, a life expectancy of like a few weeks. None of the chemo's was working. Cancer was everywhere in her body. Um, and they did this um, heroic effort where you don't need FDA cre approval you're just like well got nothing to do so let's try so they did the gene editing they used CRISPR and they got her immune cells and it was what i was talking about before about the cancer they like changed her immune cells to target the cancer that she had and then in two weeks she was free of cancer like not a cancer cell in her body like it had worked so it cures cancer it it cures cancer but for that yeah um but um yeah so for those things, though, there's no, like it's not like if you get cancer, you can't just go to a thing and say, give me CRISPR because it hasn't done proper clinical trials. And but how, like that. how
0: did she get access to it despite the FDA?
1: So you can, so this, and this was in the UK, um, but I think it's something called like a heroic effort exemption. So basically if they think you're about to die, you're allowed to try these really experimental treatments. it's quite treatments. hard to get. I think it's quite hard to get it and you'd have to have, you know, she would have had treating physician would have had to like have knowledge about you could do this and been keen to give it a go but yeah but potentially that's right you can do that
0: the uk is quite uh, they've got some of the more relaxed um, laws around gene editing don't they
1: yeah for um human gene editing so they're allowing it so in australia doesn't you can't even do research with it so well not you. so it's a bit the laws are a bit murky but it looks like you can't even do it in a lab kind of thing to, like, see if you could change, you know, embryonic DNA and see the effects. But in the UK, you can, as long as you don't transport them um, back into a woman. So you're not going to have a live birth, but you can still do experiments on it.
0: So do a lot of uh, scientists move to the UK so as to be able to experiment uh, more freely?
1: Yeah, I think there's been, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know how big it is, but yeah, I know at least one American scientist that went and did her her work over there, so she could use CRISPR in this way. It's
0: it's also occurred to me that for those who say that CRISPR is um, unnatural, that the opposite could also be true. That um, what if this is something that we were always meant to discover, and just another step on our evolutionary trajectory? Does that? If- Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and I think this, you know, this comes up just more generally about, you know, what is natural and, you know, what is unnatural. And, you know, there's, I guess, the common kind of view of natural in the lay sort of person's thing is like, oh, well, humans make things that are artificial and the rest of the world is kind of natural. But like, of course, that's kind of silly because we're a product of...
0: We're just a highly evolved animal. Yeah, we're
1: just a highly evolved animal. So the things that we're making is natural. Um, so yeah, and you know, the flip side of that is, you know, people say, well, something that's natural, it's automatically good. And something that's unnatural is, is bad. But, you know, obviously the Ebola virus is natural and, you know, if heroin's natural, it doesn't mean that, you know, Mm. you should, those are all really good things kind of thing. So it's
0: just the wrong terminology, really. I think because there's there's something to what, what they're saying, I think, uh, it could, you know. Something can be something we shouldn't do despite being, quote, unquote, natural. Yep. Um, so maybe it's just...
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's just to do with... I think a lot of the time with unnatural things, it's actually what we're objecting to is it's a risky thing to do. You know, we don't understand it and it's, and it's, it could have bad consequences. So it's a risk that we're taking.
0: What was the name of that Chinese doctor... Two or three years ago, yeah, um,
1: we... yeah her her John Quay, who is the one that first did the first CRISPR babies.
0: And what did he do? And what did he get in trouble for?
1: Um, so he, um, so he m- m- was the first one to use CRISPR to have a live birth. So he um, gene edited these twin embryos, um, and he used the technology to try and. Um, give this mutation, which is our CCR5 mutation, which is um, codes for a receptor on our immune cells, and it's the receptor that the HIV virus uses to enter the cells. So if you have a particular form of this receptor, the HIV virus can't get in and you're naturally resistant, and I think about 10% of people in Europe, for example, are naturally resistant to HIV.
0: So he made he made an alteration in these embryos to make them immune to HIV?
1: Yeah, attempted to, yeah.
0: And why was that such a big scandal in the scientific community and what happened to him as well?
1: Yeah, so um, it was a big scandal because, you know, as we've been talking about, the technology is is very, very new still. So it's only been for about for five years. Um, and another thing to th- think about the technology, even if you're using it in you know, in plants and things, every cell is different. So human cells, you would need to do work on particular human cells and particular embryonic cells. Um, So that was very controversial because basically no one had done enough research to know that this is actually really safe enough to use in humans. So I know this is confusing because at the start I was saying how safe it is, and that's true compared to other technologies. It's comparatively safe. but. You've got to ask yourself how much risk I want to take with a live human kind of thing. You basically would want it to be, you'd want to know it's perfect, you know, a really high degree of confidence. And we're just not at that point. Um, so that's sort of one reason. A second reason is that the most obvious application of this technology in my mind is to try and reverse mutations which cause death. You know, if, if you there are genetic diseases like Tysak syndrome, like spinal muscular atrophy that kill people in childhood. Um, it would make more sense to use this technology to try and reverse those mutations, to try and you know, make sure that someone didn't die and they lived a long life. The embryos that he was using were completely healthy embryos, so they're not going to develop disease that, that we know of um, if he didn't edit them.
0: It's almost recreational gene editing yeah, as opposed to...
1: Yeah, uh, it's also like an enhancement, you might say. It's not a, there's no therapeutic need for them to do it, um, you know, it's a bit complicated, but um, there was no immediate need for them to do it. And it also means that if there is an off-target mutation and uh, uh, you know, it gives them cancer when they're young because it's an unlucky mutation. Then he did
0: make a mistake as well, didn't he?
1: It's not perfect, yeah. So um, the, he, ha-
0: he had an off-target yeah, problem.
1: That's right, and also... Um, the sequence that he the children ended up getting is not identical with the sequence that the people who are actually resistant to HIV have. So it's similar but not but not the same. So there's this uncertainty whether, well, we don't really know if they're going to be resistant to HIV. And obviously there's no real ethical way to kind of test <laughs> that because you can't just try and give them <laughs> HIV. So. What an idiot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, and, you, do you know... Think, a, do you think
0: that um, by proving research into CRISPR will get less examples of people doing that or more do you think it'll the regulations uh will stop people like him uh you know just having fun with it as opposed to you know okay he can actually find an avenue to uh, to experiment
1: yeah um i think so um so i feel like the, there was so much, there was, you know, really, one of the good things about it was there was a lot of backlash and it seemed like the scientific community were in agreement that he was an idiot and shouldn't have done it. And I, you know, feel like that. And now he's in, sorry, the end of that story too is he got done for, there was no no laws in China about actually doing it, but um, he got done for fraud for some, um, one of the forms that he used had, I think, um like had said it's a medical experiment when it's not strictly a medical experiment, it's a research. So we got done for fraud and got put in jail. So um, I feel like, you know, there's now probably like a strong for established scientists that want to have a good career in science, I don't think any of them will do it, but there might always be rogue people who don't really care about a career in science and, you know, really want to be, a you know, a pioneer. Is part of the problem that scientists
0: are always going to have an inherent bias towards um, a more open approach to research and experimentation. I mean, if you put ethical restrictions on how to use CRISPR, that directly hampers a scientist's uh, ability to do their job. And so there's a, there's a bias built into their approach that's uh, going to make them say, yes, this should be approved, rather than being a bit more dispassionate and objective about it.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say that's like a general kind of thing. but um, And I say that because um, one of the first things I did when I was writing about CRISPR was actually arguing against scientists who I thought were being too pessimistic. So the first, one of the first bits of science was people who were using it in somatic cells and they wrote these editorials um, in, published in Nature and Science, really good journals, saying all germline editing research should be stopped and we shouldn't do that and we should only do somatic cell editing. And I feel like they did that because that's what they do and they want to protect their kind of thing and they don't want it to get it sort of morally tainted kind of thing. Um, but sort of our view was, well, you know, if we've got this technology and you can do a research in a petri dish on an embryo, which we do and we do embryo research anyway with these other tools, you know, we might find out really interesting things if we do research. So we should be sort of doing that. So I feel like, you know, scientists, you know, there will definitely be, there's this whole array of scientists and there's a whole array of how conservative and how open they are to sort of new things. So I think, you know, yeah, it's just a diversity in scientific approaches right now.
0: Because I I got the sense, at least from the researchers in natural Selection, that, they are a bit too enthusiastic irresponsibly enthusiastic for the technology
1: yeah I'm sure there are some yeah so there were definitely some scientists like that and there's you know very well known scientists so there's um, I know there's guys that um, George Church I forget exactly his one but he was one of the first ones to sort of um, help map the sort of DNA project, and, you know, he's been very in favour of we should just be using this all the time and, you know, we should be taking control of our evolution and stuff. So you definitely get ones that are, like, yeah, quite, yeah, probably less objective, just basically have this view that all scientific approaches are, are good mm. kind of thing, yeah.
0: Do you think innovation only happens because of people like that?
1: I think innovation, like, you know, I think it... <clears throat>
0: Does it require
1: Yeah, I, I think it's like a good thing. Yeah, well I yeah, I feel innovation comes when there's diversity of perspective perspectives and diversity of sort of approaches. So I think, yeah, I do think you, you probably it's probably good for science and it's probably good for humanity in general, actually, that there are these sort of um, outsiders that think really differently and want to drive things up. Doesn't mean that they should, that they should have controls, but it's good to like always hear those perspectives.
0: Mm. What is gene drive?
1: So, um, a gene drive is, and I don't actually understand the science of it too well, but it's something that, um, you attach to a CRISPR, um, edit. So say you do the blue green eyes that we were doing it. So you have a gene drive and you do the edit for green eyes. What it will mean is that every single one of your offspring will have green eyes. So normally if you say you've got a blue eye gene and a green eye gene, um, under normal circumstances, 50% 50% of the gametes, the sperm you produce will have the blue eye gene, 50% will have the other one, the green eye gene. Um, and what the gene drive jobs is it biases that um, shift in so that 100% will have the one with the, the green eye gene.
0: And what, how will that be applied? Why, why is that exciting to scientists?
1: So it's exciting right now, um, not for human uses, but for uses on other animals. And it's generally seen as most exciting as a way of sort of killing animals. So they're using it as mosquitoes right now. Um, And the idea is that you get this gene, which basically um, will kill all female offspring. So it's lethal to females, but males can live. You push it out into the environment with these mosquitoes And they interbreed with a natural population, and then all the female offspring die, and then you only get males, and then the population just crashes and dies because it's just males, kind of thing. So, from my understanding, it's primarily being used as a way of sort of population control in these other animals. But
0: you know, but but also as a possible cure to malaria.
1: Well, exactly. So that's why they're doing it. So it's you know the the it's reducing. Um, The risk of malaria by killing these, by reducing mosquito numbers. Um, And, you know, it's important because currently they try to kill lots of mosquitoes through pesticides, but pesticides have all these other side effects. Um, And they, you know, not just harmful to mosquitoes, they're harmful to lots of different insects. So the idea is this would be a more efficient way of achieving these goals that we already have, say, to reduce rates of malaria.
0: Has it ever been used Has it been used publicly before gene drive? Has, has, has anyone been given approval to, to use gene drive on a species of animal yet?
1: Yeah, yeah. So they're doing the mosquito thing. Mosquito thing is out there. There are the gene drive mosquitoes that are...
0: And they've altered entire species So,
1: well, yeah, so the success to date has been limited. So what seems to happen is that they put these mosquitoes out and it works for a little bit. So you'll get a drop for a year but then the, they recover and it's just like you never did anything. So it's kind of like the natural evolution of the species um, just catches up and goes through. So that's, I think that's the main challenge now.
0: Is that also a – because, I mean, I know mosquitoes kill more people than any other animal yep. on the planet. I imagine, say, you uh, get rid of malaria using gene drive. Obviously, all those people um, not dying is a good thing. Um, But is the world, are there going to be economic uh, infrastructure, all these different other kinds of issues that we're not ready for by the sudden uptick in uh, the world population from, from things like that?
1: Yeah. So I think there's always going to be like those unknowns kind of things. So there's always going to be these sort of, Um, possible side effects and things, but, you know, that's going to be the case. Less of a tragedy than millions of deaths. Exactly, exactly. Yes, a risk worth taking. Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, Do you think this technology could be the answer to some even more profound problems? Could we use this technology to combat obstacles with space travel, for example? Because I I don't know much about... um, the science behind space travel but I know that one of the main problems with long voyages is uh, the muscular atrophy yeah and could you use uh, CRISPR to like we were saying before uh, to enhance astronauts muscles as they travel for long long periods in,
1: in yes. space yeah so I think that's a really interesting thing so I think you know if you go a bit sci-fi so go a bit into the future um, what could you do with this technology and I just think It really makes sense that a technology where you could rapidly enhance your evolution, it will be a handy thing to have if, you know, you're going to use it for good purposes. But, you know, not just for space travel, we might be facing, you know, in a thousand years, a really different atmosphere and really different environmental conditions here. and. Natural selection takes a long time for you to evolve to those conditions, and maybe you won't evolve fast enough, and you die out. So, be able to, you know, rapidly change within generations. You know, our lungs, how we much oxygen we can get from the air, our bodies, you know, how resistant we are to heat and to radiation. All those things will be really useful, and for space travel too. You could think, well, you know, eventually we know here the sun's going to blow up in how many billion years. We probably need to leave at something if we want to continue humankind and. You you would need a technology like this to adapt you for space voyage, whatever that is, like muscle atrophy or whatever. You'd want to have a technology like this.
0: Is this one of the greatest scientific innovations ever?
1: I think it's it's definitely one of the most recent ones. You know, you you think about things like penicillin and stuff, which has saved millions of lives, and this is, you know, such, as we said, it's like five years old. So it's a bit early to make that call, but... The potential is amazing. Limitless. Know. Yeah. It just um, when you think about the diversity of life, you know, from bacteria, you know, things under the sea, us, like all that is just differences in DNA. Like that's the only differences in that life. So the potential to use this technology to alter life is just, yeah, it's like limitless. You, you could do so much with it.
0: What are the implications for health insurance? with CRISPR?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, health insurance normally comes up in sort of genetic testing and things. If you've got, you know, um, a predisposed to a disease, you'll find it hard to get coverage and things. I think it's probably the most relevant with the point that you were making before about, well, what happens for people that don't use it kind of thing. So if we're using gene editing and we're making people healthier, less likely to cancer, um, what you might get is health insurance thinking coming, oh, we're not going to cover you unless you're a crisped child. Do you know what I mean? Because you're more at risk. Because you're more at risk, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it it might, um, yeah, get this, perpetuate the idea of health insurance companies coming into our lives more and wanting to say, like, well, we want to have a look at your genome before we insure you and, you know, we want to make sure that any of the edits are corrected before we do it. So, yeah, that's a, that's a possible implication. I should say too, though, like if that's a bad thing, we can control that with regulation, right? So, you know, it used to be um, genetic discrimination for life insurance used to be a thing in the US. So life insurance companies were like, you know, asking if you ever had genetic tests and people didn't like that and they banned it. So there's now this law that bans you from doing that in the US. So you can control those things with regulation, but they're, they're good to think about.
0: Do you think there's a risk that the medical necessity of using CRISPR may become ambiguous in a lot of situations? Isn't the boundary between therapy and, enhance- and enhancement quite a grey area?
1: Yeah. So I think this is one of the biggest things for me, one of the biggest problems, is that like, once you start with the easy cases I was talking about before, like you correcting a gene that causes death in childhood... You know, I don't know. I, it's really hard to think of an objection to that, and I think we're really secure in those cases. But then you get off, it's like, well, what about disease in adulthood? And then it's like, well, what about something that you know? What about something that's not doesn't kill you but makes your life harder, like deafness? That's another hard case. And then like, well, what about like asthma? And then like, it's really hard to know where you sort of draw that line. So in.
0: in an ideal world, CRISPR gives us the ability to put everyone on a level playing field from when they're born. But the problem will arise when people go beyond that, is what you're saying, and when people um, become make arbitrary decisions rather than necessary decisions.
1: Yeah. Um, And for me, so one of the things I think is uh, a really massive collective danger of a technology like CRISPR is that people start to use it in all these arbitrary ways, but they start to use it in kind of similar ways. And what you end up with is sort of a a lack of diversity um, in particular areas, which could be really, really damaging. So, like, my favourite example is um, we know when people are solving really hard problems, um, like really hard engineering problems, even things like, you know, approaches to climate change and things, um, groups of diverse thinkers can outperform groups of higher ability, higher intelligence, people that are less diverse. So when we're solving problems, it's good to have lots of different perspectives and lots of different heuristics, and that way you work together and you can find optimal ones. So like a worry would be that if you have um, CRISPR, and everyone uses the same one, you get this whole population of people that sort of think in similar ways, and you've lost this diversity in thought. And you've actually maybe, even though you've been trying to make everyone smarter, you've, you've made put a, yourself
0: at a disadvantage.
1: Yeah, you've put, made the society as a whole kind of dumber because we're now all just thinking in the same way and we're sort of stuck in this box. So, um, you know, I think that's those type of things, uh, you know, really need to think about. And, you know, it's things like autism and ADHD too, right? So we know that um, people have these Different ways of thinking, and they're often disadvantages for people at school and, and in life in generally. But we also know people with autism and ADHD can do a really amazing, unique things, you know. And um,
0: and that's almost goes to what I was saying before, where uh, an alteration might be made that is later regretted. It's seen as an advantage at the time, uh, but might not be seen that way by someone later on.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think. So that's something ex- like
0: autism, you might. You know, a parent might want to make the alteration uh, to stop their child being uh, born autistic, uh, but that child could have been, you know, the next Stephen Hawking or something.
1: Yeah, yeah, and then just more generally, you might get, you know, the next generation and you've just lost this group of really good systemizer thinkers that maybe in the environment you've got in 100 years, you know, would be perfect for that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, there's this worry that we'd judge everything by our standards of today's society and what's good and what's bad and then lose sight that actually society might be very different in, you know, 300 years and you want people that might approach things very differently. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's a, I guess that's probably the main concern with it is that we're assuming our outlook on the world is the correct one.
1: Uh, and, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah that's could right. could
0: be very different and the decisions we've made because of that outlook could be very damaging
1: yeah so um like i think an example someone's given to me once is like you can imagine if like you know um 18th century britain had gene editing and they could um edit their you know favorite characteristics in their children you'd get you know lots of breeding for like obedience and manners Mm -hmm. and like those things that were really important to them then but we don't find important now kind of thing and you would have like lost so much of that diversity carrying forward
0: even yeah you get cultures that make physical alterations is you know, just traditional. Yeah. You know, like uh, is it the Chinese who they, yeah. they, they alter the shape of their feet? Yeah, uh, foot binding. Yeah. yeah. And so imagine if, and I'm sure we do have parts of our culture that will in hindsight be seen as bizarre. Uh, yeah. And the same way we look at that is uh, bizarre. But, um, yeah, it's, I guess that's the, the main fear.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think it's really hard to think about you know, those cases where, um, yeah, it's like, I see what you're saying at the start. It's like, some reason we would think we'd be better off without this technology because you'd be, um, you know, less prone to make these mistakes that we don't even know we're making. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is there a patent out on CRISPR? Can you, can you, are any companies trying to? Uh, patent the technology?
1: Yeah, so um, there was a really big patent dispute. So when I um, talked about initially, I talked about Jennifer Downer and Amalie Champantier, so they discovered it and they're at Berkeley, but they didn't use it for gene editing things in human cells or in animal cells. They just used it in bacteria, which is what they were working on. And then um, someone at MIT, Frank Zhang, um, was the first one to use it in um, what's called um, eukaryote cells, which are cells like with a nucleus, like human cells. So Berkeley and MIT basically had this really big patent dispute, and MIT won. So um, whatever company... So
0: Doudna didn't win?
1: No, Doudna didn't win. No, no. So they they didn't win the main... But
0: isn't uh, it worth... Billions more,
1: yeah. So it was, it was a really big, um, yeah, Jesus. it was a really big thing that would piss yeah. me off, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but she got the Nobel Prize, so she'll be she'll so be that's worth for that, yeah, which yeah. is worth
0: billions to most scientists, yeah, I I'm yeah, imagine. That's right,
1: yeah. How can
0: CRISPR be used to combat viral threats in the future, something like COVID 19? Is that, are there any implications for that, or
1: yeah, so, um. Yeah, I can actually, I can talk a bit about this because I've just been doing COVID genetics as a little project I'm working on now. So um, with any infectious disease, um, you generally will have some genotypes that will either make you... So with I'll just talk about COVID-19. So with COVID-19, we know that um, infection for some people doesn't bother them. They're asymptomatic. They can go about their lives. And some people, they develop serious respiratory failure. And they've found genes now that are associated with that. So some people carry these um, rare mutations, which make them sort of like eight times more likely to get life-threatening COVID-19. So potentially you could use a technology like gene editing to um, select against those genes. So it's almost
0: like a way of getting an immediate vaccine. Yeah. Because we could say another virus uh, breaks out the scientists could immediately identify what those what genetic alterations are necessary uh, to prevent uh, uh, more dire symptoms and they could rather than even having to make a vaccine you could just immediately offer people that uh, that genetic alteration so that they're regardless of whether they get the virus or not they're immune to the worst symptoms
1: yeah so could. yeah so you could do it two ways so um you could do it in the germline in, which would mean that the generation of children that was coming up would be immune. So if you did it for COVID now, you uh, could offer it to so that generation or potentially one day you might be able to do it with somatic editing, which is just like a vaccine, it would just be like um, a different way. So that we still don't have the technology to do that yet. But um, I actually think that perspective is, again, highlights a really big danger of the technology and so going back to her, John Quay, who did HIV gene, which is CCR5. So it's true that that variant makes you resistant to HIV, but it makes you more susceptible to other diseases. So it makes you more susceptible to something called West Nile fever. Um, And I think this is true for lots of things. So even though something might make you resistant to COVID, like say, okay, well, let's get all that gene, COVID's bad, so we fix this COVID resistance gene, it could be the case that the next generation get another pandemic and you've made everyone more susceptible to that kind of thing. So um, that's why I think, you know, protective diversity, where I think genetically diverse populations, you know, do better against pandemics because some people are resistant and they can sort of, you know, look after the others. And then if another one comes, you might have other people that are resistant. The big danger of CRISPR is that you homogenize a whole population. So they've all got these immune cells and maybe they're really good against HIV or COVID, but who knows what will come in you know, 50 years and they might be now really susceptible to. How did you,
0: how did you get into this field to begin with? Have you always been interested in uh, gene editing and the ethics of gene editing or is it as the advent of CRISPR uh, made you more?
1: Yeah, I was like really good place, good time really. So um, I first started doing genetics um, and I was always really interested in genetics and um When I was doing my honours, I did a project on genetics of lifespan variation. Um, But while I was doing that, I found out I really hated being in the lab and I just liked to think about, oh, should we make people live forever or not?
0: Think of the abstract. Yeah.
1: Um, So then I sort of transferred and did um, my PhD, which was just in human enhancement generally. So this is before CRISPR was a thing. And I was just interested, yeah, should we do genetic engineering? Should we do life extension? Um, Things like that. And then um, as soon as I got my... Um, As soon as I was finishing my PhD, I, like, read about CRISPR even before, like, it was used in humans, like, just when it was a technology. And I was like, oh, that's a really cool technology. So I did a grant proposal to, like, do the ethics of it. And I just timed it perfectly because as soon as I'd done that grant proposal, that Chinese studies came out. And then... What year was that, 2017? uh,
0: 2016. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because how... I mean... Jennifer Doudna and uh, what was the uh,
1: Manuel Charpentier.
0: Charpentier. Yeah. They made the big discovery in 2012. 12. 12. Yeah. And, but has, was there any evidence of, uh, were there any other traces of this technology um, prior to that that were ever discovered? Had anyone ever seen anything um, that sort of, that suggested CRISPR existed?
1: No, not to, like, so I'm sure other scientists probably knew it existed in who were experts in bacteria and things as a sort of bacterial thing. But to my knowledge, no one had thought that you could use this enzyme as a form of genetic engineering until that until that paper. And, you know, that's why it was really revolutionary. But, you know, apart from that, I mean, I, I think people just assume, like when I was writing my PhD and I was just doing genetic engineering, I was like, well, someone will figure out a way to do it sometime. You know, it's just like the way that genetic knowledge is increasing um, you just think it you just had this idea it was only going to be a matter of time before someone figures out a way to do it yeah
0: does it make you nervous thinking about
1: oh, not as mix. much as other things yeah I mean climate change makes me more, more nervous and you know as I said I think we've got these massive problems like massive inequality in society and things that are you know far more deserving of nervousness than this mm.
0: if we do get Approval to do more research into CRISPR. Uh, what do you think will be the most significant social changes for the positive in thirty years from now?
1: Yeah, let me. Um,
0: more people living, I assume. As I guess, to dying. like,
1: yeah. So here's what I would I would hope. So not necessarily like more people, but I feel right now like. There's a bit of, like, unfairness just in medical luck in life and that, you know, some people get to age really well into their, like, 80s and 90s, have these really full lives and, you know, you, um, you, you get, you know, your whole full proper human life. Whereas you get other people who, like, die early, die in childhood or even, like, you know, die in their, like, early 40s or 50s from a heart attack or from cancer I think it would be great if we could all be confident that we're going to live a long life kind of thing. I would be confident that we can all live to like 80 or 90 and, you know, be confident in that sort of span that we get and sort of knock out this sort of uncertainty. I think that would be a good thing.
0: Mm, I agree. I think that would be good. Yeah. How, how long could you arguably live for using, can CRISPR extend our life expectancy beyond, well beyond 100 years?
1: Well, yeah, I don't. I think that's still an open question. There are certainly scientists that think not necessarily just with CRISPR but with other technologies that, you know, you you there are, yeah, there are you know proper scientists who are say things like the first person to live to 1000 is alive already because we're going to figure out ways to improve cellular damage. It's all like a, you know, reversible process aging. So I'm not sure what role CRISPR will play, but um, there's definitely Do you think we will though? You get that, oh, I don't you know. You get that sense
0: though that yeah. we're on sort of the cusp of all these crazy
1: Yeah. So I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if they're alive today, but you know, as I said with the genetic thing, it's just gonna be surely a matter of time until people figure out it figure it out kind of thing and you know, so they know in the best case is in other animals. We can already increase their lifespan massively. So we can increase the lifespan of mice um, by forty percent and other things as well, just using yeah genetic Forty percent, yeah. So they live. So instead of living to like um, just for like one year, they that's live that's to an ex- insanely
0: yeah. insane insane extension of their life expectancy.
1: Yeah, yeah, and those are yeah through quite simple sort of changes too. So um, wasn't there
0: a thing as well that Mice that had had certain genetic alterations, I think it was uh, muscular alterations, became a lot more aggressive.
1: Yeah, yeah, was that it? Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is Supermouse. So there's um, a famous genetically engineered mice called Supermouse who um, can do create like, so um, I'm just going to get my um, the distances right. So the Supermouse, so the normal mouse can run for 200 meters full speed and Supermouse could run for 1.5 kilometers at full speed. It was a thing. It was just this amazing jump in how far they could run, but not only do they run far that they, they do. I think they do live longer. Um, not as much as the other one, but they live like 20% longer. They're um, resistant to sort of uh, cancer and things. So they've got all these amazing physical benefits, um, but yeah, they're also, Um, really aggressive and will do things like self-harm so they'll like hit themselves against the cages and things which obviously normal mice
0: but do we know why they're doing that
1: i don't think they know the reason the side effects but the it's all the change in their metabolism so it's all done by the change in basically what food does to their bodies kind of thing so it's kind of freaky yeah 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 um and going back to CRISPR, i think it's like you know one of the things we're talking about before is that when you're doing something like trying to stop someone from dying early, you know, have got good reason to do that and there's not that much risk. But when you're trying to do something like, oh, let's try and make someone run really fast, then there is going to be all these side effects that are now really important because you didn't really have too much of a reason to do it in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you seen Gattaca? Yeah. yeah. Was that really ahead of its time as far as what it was commenting on?
1: I think so, yeah. So it's you know, um, and you just showed like people still talking about it. Like it's got to be like fourteen years old or, or something like longer, that. longer. I think. Is I think it it's like,
0: like ninety nine even. Or right,
1: really. So yeah, over twenty old. years old. Yeah. So um, yeah, no, I think it, it, it was ahead of this time, and you know, really picked up on this sort of um, this sort of concern about these technologies. Um,
0: but I feel it had also the perfect answer to. The problem in that there's no gene for the human spirit. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is quite interesting, isn't it? It's you know Yeah. There's something more to us than just our evolution and just our DNA in that sense.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's true. But I also yeah, another way to think about it is sometimes, you know, for anything you need sort of hardships to, you know, overcome things to really sort of achieve kind of thing and we're
0: gonna have a whole generation of cushy yeah <laughs> stuck up humans in a way yeah, <laughs> yeah. they have had everything given to them with CRISPR.
1: that's right if you, once you've had like everything given to you you know yeah i think that is you lose maybe lose that sort of idea that well to succeed i just need to like whatever's thrown at me i need to get over it kind of thing i need to sort of find a way through
0: yeah yeah no that's interesting yeah. so where um so where did you go to university um, well, so where did you do your PhD?
1: And... Yeah, so I went to PhD at ANU in Canberra um, and then I went to, I did my postdoc in Oxford over there oh, right. and then came back here,
0: yeah. Which college were you at, at
1: Oxford? Uh, so I was, because I was attached to a grant, I wasn't really a formal member of a college but yeah, no, I, I went to a lot of the fancy college dinners at like Jesus College and <laughs> Is and it and fun? And News College. Oxford? It's bizarre, yeah, it's like it's uh, a cool community. Yeah, it's uh, it's very cool. It's just a very, um, you know, especially for like an academic. It's sort of a, you know, a town you go to where they like worship academics, which is nice. Yeah, <laughs> and Yeah. Um, yeah um, but yeah, very, also feels like going to a different world in a way, like very, still very hierarchical, um, The you know, the college. Academic elitists. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and especially when you go to the colleges and, you know, you get, you um, all the kitchen staff coming around and pouring new things and you know there's the high table and the low table kind of thing. so it's a big deal to be at the high table yeah yeah. to look at
0: is oxford one of the top uh, scientific universities in the world or does, yep. it, does it specialise in a, a certain stream of science?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know too much. So it's definitely – it's the top for what I do, which is applied ethics. So it's top for applied ethics. It's also philosophy. I've in the philosophy department. It's the top, top in philosophy as well.
0: Because so. I saw AstraZeneca, the vaccine that they're putting out, that's the number one on the list, isn't it, still at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think there are two others. The two US ones. Pfizer. Yeah, there's Pfizer and Moderna.
0: Moderna and Um
1: Who are, you know, depends – but those are the three that are sort of out outrunning, yeah. Out do you know there. much
0: about vaccines? Is that, A little bit. Do you, well, because I've just found this whole year, everyone's sort of saying, oh, we won't have a vaccine to the end of the year, we won't have a vaccine for two years, or they're saying we won't even find one at all. What What is the, when will a vaccine uh, that actually works be mass-produced and be available to everyone?
1: I think, like, just, and this has all changed in the last few weeks, I reckon, but I reckon it's very, very likely that, we're going to have a vaccine very, very soon. So Pfizer is saying by the end of the year they'll be um, by be injecting people. Is that
0: unbelievably fast that they've...
1: It is, but if you think about COVID, they've had unbelievable amounts of money and unbelievable will to do it. So normally in a vaccine, there's a lot of like work at the start about, you know, what you're going to do, where am I going to get my funding, you know, but when I am going to do this? And people
0: get complacent, whereas yeah. with COVID it was... Hammer and tongs. Hammer and
1: tongs. And yeah. um, there's also it's basically a race for a vaccine. So there's those two, but there's, you know, nine other vaccines in the A money race as well. Yeah, you know. exactly, exactly. Mm. So, um, yeah, you've got a lot of focus, but, you know, it's, yeah, uh, you know, the, the tricky thing about vaccines is that, you know, you're going to give them to billions of people, kind of thing. So a
0: lot of off-target yeah, problems. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm. Just even if it's like a one in a hundred thousand, you know, that's going to be like a lot of people by the time you um, you get everyone. So,
0: but it's going to be worth it, I guess. It'll be you know, what's the what's the bigger trade-off? Having sort of all these people die, or having one in exactly the occasional. Vaccine yeah. recipient diet,
1: yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, most vaccines are kind of like that. You know, there's always a slight risk, but the collective benefits just massively outweigh it. So we think it's on, on the whole, like, still a really good thing to do.
0: Isn't COVID also just the equivalent of the common cold? In this? I mean, we've been looking for a cure for the common cold for you know, decades. Isn't it, is COVID almost identical? Yeah, so the it's the common?
1: same virus family. So it's a coronavirus. So there's. One of the viruses that causes the common cold is is a coronavirus, and it's also what sort of SARS was, which was a a different outbreak. uh,
0: But so we've solved the common, we've cured the common cold?
1: No, no, because although it's that family, it's the same. You'd still need to do one specifically for the one that causes the common cold. But what it showed is that potentially you could make a vaccine for the common cold.
0: Um, What do you think of all these anti vaxxers and people who claim, you know, Vaccines are part of this big, you know, Illuminati cabal.
1: It's yeah, just, I mean,
0: it's, it's bizarre it, how it's just sort of taken yeah, over. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, oh, it's really interesting the intricacies these conspiracy theories can get to. Kind of thing. I, I think it's like an interesting sociological phenomena about how, um, you know, you get these now groups on the internet and um, that they can in some ways it's like you get a cult sort of following, right? And then they get set up in a way that if you present them with evidence of safety, they take that as more evidence that you're trying to trick them or, you, you know, they the, they get more distrustful.
0: It's become so mainstream though. I mean, conspiracy yeah. theories used to be the outliers, I feel, even just, you know, yeah. five years ago and now one in three people I meet sort of.
1: Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, and I guess it's like the inter- I think like. I
0: think Bill Gates is trying to.
1: Yeah, trying to wipe like, out the world or something. I know. And I feel really yeah. sorry for Bill Gates because you imagine, like, you make this money, then you set up this fund. You basically give heaps of your money away to try and, like, save mm. people and, you know, um, develop new vaccines and do anything. And then, yeah, all these people think you're horrible and that like, you're trying to kill Yeah, He's an out. absolute weapon and he's yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> being told that he's screwing people over. Yeah. No, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, when you were saying how this it's more of a sort of interesting. Uh, Sociological um, Thing The way conspiracy theories Have become So mainstream And it's I don't It's almost like this. The idea of secret knowledge Is so enticing You know I yeah, know yeah. this But uh, You know No one else knows this And it's the, the, the bigger the story The more enticing it is In that sense And It's, it's weird how that plays Into people's um...
1: Yeah yeah So I think that's right Like um, Well yeah People I guess Want to know They've got that inside Kind of deal kind of thing Mm. but yeah um i also just think just the way information is distributed now is just like really you know we just got so much information you go on the internet you could basically find whatever you want and you know basically it seems like the results of that is that people just sort of choose what to believe and what to doubt we've we've
0: lost the truth baseline
1: yeah kind of Yeah. yeah um yeah it's just once you can go and get anything like you know you've got nothing to really ground you sometimes
0: Mm. yeah it's bizarre weird times Mm. really weird times all right well thanks for coming on the podcast chris and really appreciate your time and um yeah it's been fascinating so thanks a lot
1: good thanks julius thanks for having me on